Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Exception Podcast. I'm Aaron Good, and today we have a special bonus question episode and an update as well um, because uh, we didn't finish all the questions last time, and there's also some interesting things that I think people might want to know about uh, that have been going on here. Um, and so I am here today with Bryce Green. Bryce Green, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Aaron. Doing all right. Hanging in there. Very good. Um, I want to tell people about uh, the fact that we are going to start again the Peter Dell Scott Oral History Series. We're going to record one uh, here on Friday, uh, which is tomorrow, the 19th. And uh, we're hoping to basically finish up the series since Peter's mostly done with his last books. Uh, and another project related to Peter Dell Scott and I've talked about uh, the Discord and the potential Verapedia project, and we're hoping to, to be able to uh, set, set that up. And I'm going to have a meeting about that uh, here in the next week or so uh, as far as the Discord page goes. But, it's, but the other side project I want people to know about uh, is a potential Peter Dale Scott documentary, uh, which may be done with uh, Canadian government funding or we might find another way to do it but we're hoping that we can film this documentary uh because peter's had such an amazing life uh and he just deserves a, a documentary film his his own biography is very very interesting but what makes this a potentially really amazing project is that his own biography intersects with such fascinating history of uh the world's most powerful empire and i really can't think of anyone who was looking at the real story of the U.S. empire, uh, the way that Peter was for decades. I mean, he, and he was there through the Vietnam era. He was there as a diplomat looking at cables, uh, diplomatic cables before the Vietnam War broke out. It was part of the, uh, around the free speech movement at Berkeley, the anti-war movement, all those the investigating Watergate and the investigations in the 70s and Iran-Contra, uh, 9-11 i mean it's he's just had an amazing life so i'm hoping that this this uh that we're going to be able to do this and hopefully even be able to include some new interviews with peter and i might go out there and see him and we'll see if we can get that going so just wanted to tell people that that's what we're doing we're going to have some more regular american exception episodes it's been really heavy on devil's chess club uh episodes but we will have a few more recordings lately including one uh with adam fitzgerald on 9-11 that we're recording sometime soon so with that update out of the way, Bryce, can you think of anything I left off that we should mention? Um, now you got the, the documentary, you got, uh, you got the, yeah, no, I think that's everything. I mean, you probably have some stuff that you probably haven't told me about yet. That's cooking up there. So <laughs> I probably have things I've forgotten about. I'm really juggling more than is easily juggled, but um, I did do something fun, which I don't really do a lot of things that are, fun in the normal sense of the, uh, of the word but i went and uh i we had tickets to this i got tickets for my son and myself to go and see the sixers play and uh it was the first i hadn't actually been to see the sixers if you can believe that even though i'm a huge basketball fan um and have lived here for a while but we were in the we were in the 10th row uh which was awesome and we also because our friend is uh works for the sixers we got passes to uh be there for the pregame and sit courtside basically so it was like joel Embiid was like eight feet away from us shooting jumpers and stuff <laughs> he is a colossus man he is a huge dude i've seen shaquille o'neal like from about maybe 20 feet away so 
he's a Shaquille O'Neal is another really huge, impressive dude, but Joel Embiid is like, you know, similar size, just an unbelievable person And his game. They had a, he had an awesome game. He scored 41 points and they, they won, they came back to win. They beat the, the champs. So they beat, uh, Jokic. So was, I got to see two of the best big men to ever play the game. Uh, and it was, it was really, really cool. Wait, does, uh, does your kid play? Yeah, he's starting to. He's starting to. He's yeah. uh, in third grade, and but he's finally. You can't really play basketball until you get a, like around second or third grade. You can't even really get the ball to the hoop that easy. <laughs> you know, it's like the physics. But he's starting to play. He loves uh, football and baseball as well. So um, he really likes sports a whole lot, and it's uh, it's he likes to read about sports. He reads books all the time about sports. So I like it more. Like. It, could have seen more at some point in my life i might have been more like uh, pro sports it's just bread and circuses and corporate you know which it is of course in the u.s but it's also like of all the things people kids are into uh it, it's a more it's real like one of the thing yeah. yeah i mean like the smartphones and ipads and stuff he doesn't we don't let him use any of that uh because i just think that that's rewiring people's brains in unhealthy ways yeah our, uh, even older people what it's doing to kids you know who knows so but anyway he, he loved the game uh, i was just talking with uh, someone who works in like uh like early early education and they were talking about the you know all the kids get ipads and all the kids get uh you know, personal devices uh that, i mean that that's teaching them about the world i mean or how to use and navigate these technologies throughout the world but it is also rewiring their brain in such a way because a lot of their lessons are like gamified and they they get rewards when they get questioned right and they have a progress bar and then they can buy clothes and stuff for their avatar as rewards. It's yeah. uh that's a disaster, man. It's, it's, a, it's it is a cultural disaster for us. Um, and we don't seem to be able to do anything about it. We don't seem to be able to say this. It, it's a microcosm of everything that's wrong with Western civilization that we, we no longer have any responsible authority uh, that can represent the public interest and look at institutional arrangements and think, are these healthy or unhealthy for a society? Because I think that the smartphone use, especially for children, is uh, is terrible, and we uh, we can't do anything about it. Nothing. We're like we 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 can't even entertain how we would even go about doing anything about it as a society. Uh, that it, that's crazy. It is. Yeah. It's a crazy thing. And in my uh, my department, uh, informatics, we have a lot of people studying like human computer, human robot interaction. And, you know, you talk you talk to people about their research interests and it seems interesting. But a lot of the time it's like, well, what do you think about uh, what the corporations will do with this data? Or what do you think about the, the levers of control that it increases? And they're all thinking about it. They're all like, yeah, that, that really worries me. But there's no like actual solution. There's no like, oh, well, you know, we can it's basically we'll do our best and we'll try our best to educate people about it. But I mean, that doesn't do anything in, in the face of institutional pressures of capitalism. I mean, it's, it is a nightmare, man. It's like on the one hand, they're like, you can never interfere with the market and whatever the market wants is right. They'll say that and use that to justify all sorts of things and to even to justify not fixing problems, et cetera, et cetera. But then you look at something like YouTube, right? And they don't really operate on a market model. They operate on a social control model. They're like, in that case, the markets, no, you know, they're like, screw the market. If we don't want a video to be shown, we're just going to censor it. We're going to, or we're going to put it behind, uh, you know, a, a, some sort of phony uh, 
paywall, not a paywall, but a little barrier. So it will kill it because it won't get views. We don't oh, want yeah. people to see it. I mean, this is like they're for the market until the market is and the free market and the supply and demand isn't working out the way they want it to. And then they just will rig it. I mean, it's so obvious to anyone who's like paying attention, but they don't have these kind of conversations about how bad it is on uh, in the public discourse, really. It's like you have to go and look for it if you want to hear that kind of thing. Yeah. And it sucks. So let's ha let's uh, resist the media monopoly and uh, answer some questions that that the man doesn't want us to answer, but we're going to answer them anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, this one was, uh, you know, back from the, the holiday era, but it was about, um, you know, what we're what we're planning with we two quick ideas. Uh, any chance you could get Christian Parenti to talk about a fake left? institutional supports in the Europe and uh, or in Europe and the US, as well as bring on someone like Max Blumenthal or Aaron Maté to discuss the political power, money and the analysis of the of the lobby, the Israel lobby, like APAC and other pro-Zionist PACs. I uh, think each of the subjects might be complementary to one another. Yeah, I would like to get Christian Parenzi on here. And somebody was saying that they that they knew might know how to get in touch with him, but I can't remember who that was. So I would be I would like to get him on. He's an interesting person, and uh, he's you know it's interesting that he is the son of Michael Parenti, and I think has many of his dad's views on on things. Uh, and as a result, it, I think it's you know he's a bit of um, an outlier or an iconoclast among what you know left wing intellectuals in the United States because he's been more critical of of certain things. I think he was critical of COVID mandates and some of the other and also I identity politics and such, which is um, I'm I think the same things. I think that postmodern identity politics is really derailed the left uh kind of by design i think it's a sort of a trap that they fell into um so I i'd like to have him on um max blumenthal i i'm friendly with max like uh i may ask him to come on at some point i think he's probably got a lot going on at the moment but yeah, definitely um between gray zone and i think he has a young kid and uh he's doing a lot of interviews talking about israel i hope we can get him to debate bobby kennedy at some point because i'd like to I'd sort of like to see it. I'd like to at least read about it. I'd like to. I mean, wasn't the uh, wasn't Kennedy ignoring his emails? <laughs> uh, like, I think uh, he gets a lot of emails these days and doesn't reply to uh, all that of is them, true. including people that I know he's good friends with. So that alone isn't that significant. But he does seem to have been told he has to duck uh, Max uh, because he's. Which I I think it's him being told that because he has off the cuff kind of said like, oh yeah, I'll do that. I think his inclination is to want to do that, but I think whatever is managing this campaign is, you know, stricter about that. Um, yeah. But I think we're going to, we'll probably talk about that. Uh, Nico House does the Kennedy Beacon podcast with me, and we're both of the same mind uh, of, of about Kennedy. We both are like, you know, this his this Israel business is horrific, and if he doesn't change it, he's going to lose. So, And if he doesn't change it, then there's really no hope with any of the other people and that means no real hope for something better from the united states until 2028 <laughs> um because a revolution's not in the offing and we know what the democrats and the republicans have in store so but we're both we're also like we're you know this needs to happen so that'll be we're gonna that's another update i guess for people that nico and i are gonna have some conversations about this uh but it's really interesting the people at the kennedy beacon are not 
we we it finally blew up that we were like trying to say like we should actually say something about this on the website um and it's because no people that no really nobody there wants to defend the policy it's pretty it's i mean the, the weakest defense is really so it's i don't want to get to talk out of you know say too much there but i think i could say like it's it's a group, good group of people who are who care about peace and other injustice and other issues so um you know it's a contested area let's just say but anyway uh next question yeah well i have a quick question about Chris, christian sure, sure, I mean, sure. Uh, what does he what does he work on i mean i i know the name and i know his like his dad's work a lot but well, is he a journalist? Is he an author? I believe that he is a sociology professor somewhere uh, at a university. And hmm. I don't know what all his work is on. Um, I, I think I've seen the books that he's written in the past and looked over them and read reviews of them and thought they were interesting and wanted to check them out and just for whatever reason had other, you know, uh, put them on the back burner and didn't. Um, but he is a sociologist and he is a critic of American empire. One of the things he also said was that He's tried. He's tried to explain why the deep state hates Trump, and then some people on the left were because he was saying like they don't like him because he's uh, he, he's not fully on board with all of these these wars for not for ideological reasons but for pragmatic self interested reasons, which I I think is actually accurate. I, I think the left is a little. Some people on the left want to be like Trump is not anti war and he, the deep state doesn't really hate him, and uh, you know the empire does has gone after trump and they the neocons do hate him for different reasons you do have to explain it it, it it's you know i think that the left kind of has a hard time explaining this uh, because of you know for doctrine issues yeah um, i mean like you wouldn't is there a do you think that there is an agreed upon or a consensus answer as to why the left or why the establishment seems to hate trump or does like what do you think is the what would you, uh, yeah, what would you well, say the left even thinks about that? I don't. I don't think the left thinks about why the establishment doesn't like Trump very much. Uh, they just talk about how they don't like Trump very much. Um, but it, it, again, it goes back to this idea that there are you know multiple factions within any empire, and the the faction that Trump represents is sort of this like maverick billionaire class who doesn't really adhere to the ideological consensus of the empire in terms of like. Like Trump wasn't wedded to the idea of NATO. Uh, Trump, uh, well, you know, he talked about getting out of NATO, which, you know, uh, many parts of the empire were disgusted with. But uh, there are parts of the empire, like the you know these magic billionaires who are like, yeah, let's burn everything to the ground. Like the, the Mercers who, who are like back in the Steve Bannons of the world. Uh, I don't think that they have a coherent like world domination ideology. Uh, but I think that they're within this imperial framework that they're, uh, sort of taking aim at the whole system for whatever reason. Uh, but, you know, Trump still may, is part of that, uh, you know, that international deep state. Like, I think in American deep state, Peter Peter Dale Scott has a whole chapter about how Trump is deeply connected with the international deep state through, like, uh, you know, Russian mafia or what what have you. Just the, just the, uh, the underworld of these rich... Uh, this rich class of decision makers. Global oligarchy. Yeah, this global oligarchy. Um, but then you have the, uh, you know, the institutionalist empire who are like, you know, we care about NATO. We care about, uh, or we you know, think, we, well, let's not, instead of saying care, maybe like we, 
value yeah we think NATO's adds to the project of empire yeah. <laughs> like they think that the like project they... of empire can be best uh best managed under these international organizations these are not caring people as much as what i'm trying to say <laughs> yeah they're they're just there or they, or they they it's an instrument it's a useful instrument trump apparently didn't see the instrument instrumentality of that and, and you know, there's a lot of other must, things. I don't think he understands the political economy of the of what the, of the U.S. empire. I think he doesn't at all. I don't think I don't know that Biden necessarily does either, but he knows who to defer to. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the thing with Trump and uh, uh, like the Israel thing. Like he suggested that you know he's just a basic deal maker. He's just a businessman. He wanted Israel. He wanted to get a you know a deal with his name on it in the Middle East, and so yeah. he suggested, why don't we? Uh, condition our support for Israel, our aid, the million, the billions of dollars we give to Israel, on them making a peace deal with the Palestinians. It's funny uh, that, was that he didn't even. Idea. It's funny that he didn't even know that he could, like the people that elected that some of his biggest funders were people who were backing him precisely because he they did they thought he would be the person to prevent that. Yeah, <laughs> and they were probably correct that he was a person who would prevent that. I'm sure Kushner took him aside and said. You can't do this. Yeah. You know? Or they but, did the, the thing where they would like uh, move things off of his desk so he didn't see them or <laughs> uh, or just like not tell him things so he could never make a decision. And it, it was a clown yeah. show in there. And if you read some of the books uh, like on the Trump administration from insiders, it's just an absolute clown. The, the opportunities for manipulation were just infinite. And, yeah. and if you were if you were determined to have some policy within the Trump White House and you were like high level enough and you knew how the system worked, you could probably get it through or at least block a policy that you didn't like by preventing it from getting uh, to Trump's desk. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's but a it's, it is weird that the left can't really, the left can't grapple with uh, at least the mainstream and the professional left. Like, I don't think that they can really grapple with why the establishment hates Trump because it, it's, it gets into kind of deep politics. And I think there's kind of, there's a, there's more, there's a bit of an aversion to looking at, the factions that put him in there. I don't, I think it's an incoherent sort of a thing. You have Trump who's an, who is self aggrandizing totally. You had very pro Israel people who I think thought even thought Hillary was not, was insufficiently pro Israel because of, you know, like the things that she did, like, like telling Bibi Netanyahu, he needed to stop settlements. And then hmm. Bibi Netanyahu basically went over her head to Biden. And then they, they put the kibosh on that and they just went ahead and did whatever they wanted. But I think even that is enough to be, for the Israel lobby to be like, no, we don't like Hillary. We'd rather have this Trump fellow. I mean, because he had support from people like Ackman. I mean, Ackman, what does Ackman care about? Zionism, you know, that mm -hmm. guy is, uh, is a is terrible hedge fund guy. He's like one of the most despicable uh, people around. And uh, that's his issue. He backed Trump, you know. Um, why was he backing Trump? Because I think, you know, I think like the Jerusalem uh, embassy and all that, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So, but then on the other hand, you have these domestic people who are kind of like Bircher descendants. And they're, they are, as Peter, they're what Peter points to as being related to manufacturing. And they're not the, they're not the globalists. Yeah. In the, you know, I mean, they're right wingers, but they're not the, the globalists who are like the capitalists who want to, the right wing capitalists who do, who want to focus more on international, dominating the international system. So Trump is just totally incoherent and you can't, I, I don't think that there's any, it's frightening. The, the lack of any core, anything makes it hard to even know how to criticize him in a, and say what he represents in a coherent way. Yeah. I mean, like, it, like the healthcare thing, like he was like, 
well, why can't we just give Medicare to everybody? Like, he doesn't understand the political economy of America. Well, he does. He understands. It's funny that he understands, like, that's a very logical solution. Yeah, but he didn't understand why he couldn't just do that. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't understand why they benefit from having a a system that screws everyone. He thinks, like, I'm the president, and uh, if I I could fix the healthcare problem, people would like me. Yeah. And so I should fix the healthcare problem. We could do this very easily. And he's uh, totally right. He said he doesn't understand that like he's not allowed to fix things and fix yeah. problems. Those problems are good. It's good that people are terrified of losing their health insurance because then they have to stick with their shitty jobs and they can't organize politically because they don't have wherewithal. They're just worried about making sure they don't upset, you know, capital. Because capital, yeah. if they don't if they upset capital, capital then they don't get to go see the doctor. Their yeah. kids don't get to see the doctor. I mean so what you know, it's a it's quite a system. Yeah. Okay, anyway, right, that's getting a little far afield from Christian Parenti, but I would like I to have say, him like, on. That was a Christian Parenti question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, this is a this is a sort of related question. I mean, is right wing populism helping or hurting progressive positions in the late stage U.S. empire craziness? Tucker Carlson sounding like a socialist on economic issues is the best example. I don't know what to really make of it. Uh, is it a chance to build coalitions, or will it speed up the road to fascism and Christian nationalism? I, I think that the trying to suss out this is a good question and it's an important question and it's good we have readers that think about these things because it is interesting that you'll hear Tucker Carlson say things about economics that you will not hear people like Obama and Biden mention talking about protectionism and other uh, you know outsourcing um, out, out, the outsourcing of jobs, the offshoring of jobs, the replacement of workers with automation. And he's, and he's pointing out that this is really terrible. Now, people want to say, no, no, Tucker Carlson, right-wing Fox, and he's racist, and he's CIA, and everything else. Like, okay, sure, he's not. He obviously represents some corporate forces and you know reactionary forces and so on. That's not really that interesting, okay, to, to point that out. What is interesting is, like, why that is that is becoming part of his shtick okay like why is he suddenly saying like i never knew that the media i thought the media just reported on things i didn't really realize the media was actually responsible for governance in a way is is what he's essentially said well okay at least he he, but he's saying that that's interesting that he's saying that did his is he really that dopey no, I don't know, but I, is it worth spending a bunch of time trying to suss out whether he really never figured that out or not? It's interesting that you can have some truths said by people on the right that are more truths of a left-wing bent, but that the mainstream corporate Democrat left doesn't say. I, I don't think I don't know that it points to anything except that the the coherence of our whole system and political spectrum is breaking down. And he seems to be a, a symptom of that, as is right-wing conspiracism anyway. The fact that you get people like him uh, talking about pol- the JFK assassination and conspiracy theories have been promoted among conservative groups, even when, if you look at them, these are right-wing conspiracies. Like when they're writing about the assassinations of the 60s and conservative people are reporting on it and they're getting exercised about it, like these are right-wing plots to achieve right-wing political goals and the political right is the one that's interested in doing it. And it actually delegitimizes them in a way. So the left is like, oh, we don't want to be a conspiracy theorist like these people. I mean, this is impressive that they can, you know, we could, that we can have such a stage managed discourse, even as it doesn't even matter that it's stage managed because they're not, they're not translating that into victories anywhere outside of just baffling us and politically neutering us. 
Yeah, I, I think that that last point is the core one. It's like this is it's pretty stage managed to the point where they can package up actual uh, serious analysis and sell it back to you in the guise of like a, like a serious figure trying to take on the establishment. Like, you're right. Tucker did have some of the best segments on uh, the, the Kennedy assassination, the Nord Stream pipeline, the Ukraine war in general. Uh, but, you know, he's also, uh, like you said, like, yeah, of course he's CIA. Like his dad was the uh, head of Voice of America. He went down uh, to, Nicar- to Nicaragua during uh, like the Contra war. And uh, and his whole was, I think he was chilling with um, Chamorro, I think, and those other oh, was oligarchs. He? Yeah, I, I think forget. That I know like, uh, like he got to, a... I think he was there when that election was won, the one that defeated the Sandinistas. Um, I think that he was a part of that. Huh. Well, in any case, I mean, Tucker's not the he's not a like a radical. And the, the idea that he ju- is just now learning that, oh, you know, the media has such an outsized role in shaping reality. I mean, that's obviously nonsense, but you're right. The question is why. And uh, I've always, uh, well, not always, but like recently I've been thinking about this idea of how a lot of these sorts of things are coming out, uh, you know, with the Kennedy assassination, you know, New York Times is admitting like, oh, this might change our view of it. And then we're having, what if if we were wrong? (laughs) What if we were wrong? And then, but on top of that, you also have like crazy, crazy stuff going on. Like he brought on that guy who claimed to suck Obama's dick or something. Uh, I didn't. And, I didn't know what the actual details were. He did do that. Uh, I, I think uh, I heard very, about it, and I was just like, I'm not really interested in that. So I, I didn't really look. It doesn't seem like he, he's not credible. Like he's not a credible source on anything. But uh, well, I, I mean, any, any dude that's going to come on TV and be like, I sucked his, <laughs> I sucked this guy <laughs> off. I mean, right away you're thinking like, well, you automatic. How can this be? How can we think that this is credible? Because yeah. if a credible person doesn't go around saying those things yeah and he was talking about he he was on crack that whole time while like that whole period of his life so like take that for what you will but the fact that tucker is like platforming this guy and saying like hey we should take a serious look at this and then take take put that uh on top of the ufo stuff which i mean yeah i'm the only opinion i have on that is that like it's an op until like i see a fucking alien and like shake his hand so but the fact that Tucker and other people like that are pushing that seems to me that it's part of like a giant shit coding operation, a giant way to meld serious political, like deep political analysis without their wild fantasy. Uh, and a figure like Tucker, who is, uh, you know, clearly untrustworthy, but he's trying to be trustworthy. You know, he got fired from Fox News for pushing boundaries well i think you know, he did that get might fired true, he but... probably got fired for the better things that he did i mean I, I think he was fired and i don't i do think that it was for corporate they didn't like it that he thought it, he i think he thought he could be like hey people people hate big pharma i'm just gonna come out here and shit on big pharma <laughs> because they deserve it and now make me more popular i think that he it may have been as straightforward as that as far as some of the things he was doing i don't know i mean he did yeah. he did do things that you're not allowed to do and then he got fired that is true but uh like it seems to be like even even from uh, from his perspective i mean that just made him look better to whatever audience he would have i mean it's not like he needs the money he's been making like you know several million dollars a year for no yeah, he for does he could retire years yeah and so it really uh, in the broader sense, like I've been worried about, you know, this, uh, uh, this, this controlled, uh, this controlled 
disclosure of a lot of things that you you would talk about in your book, like how these disclosures of uh, actual deep political episodes might lead to some sort of sea change within the American politics. But if the, those disclosures are mixed in with a lot of nonsense and they're managed uh, in large part, uh, or at least one of the most popular figures in those disclosures is someone who is like Tucker, who is inherently untrustworthy. Uh, well, then these disclosures are being, it's a, a sort of stage managed production to uh, get people to see some reality of their country, but not to translate that into a serious critique or any serious action that could threaten the the establishment. And that's what it seems to me that Tucker's role is. Can't prove it, obviously. I mean, you're never going to be able to prove these things. I but. mean, the th yeah, a lot of things he does make sense from the terms of just like being an entrepreneur in this neoliberal economy where that all oh, the emphasis is placed on brands and individualism in that kind of way, you know, the individual as a brand. So they, they sort of make sense that way. But I do think that there's something to the 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 state crimes against democracy deep events these sort of high crimes like these are things that sh are the reason they cover them up and are so hotly contested and that you still have youtube censoring jfk videos right even though it's <laughs> 60 years later like is because they are profoundly delegitimizing the the truth of them is they are delegitimizing to capitalism to the to our to our democrat to our supposedly democratic system which is really an oligarchy and it shows that really the oligarchy has a a, a secret veto power which makes it honestly a, a kind of fascism like that's really the logic of that if you go back and watch oliver stone's jfk he was actually on this quite explicitly saying like fascism you know what kind of system is it mm -hmm. that, that can do this like that's there's a name for it and it's fascism like that's and that was part of taken from Jim Garrison interviews and such, but it was important that he put that in there. And he would he was making this a similar argument just off the top of his head in interviews about that. He was saying like, yeah, it's a kind of the national security state, you know, it, it delivers a kind of fascism. Uh, it operates secretly in a kind of fascist way. And uh, that's so that's a that's a delegitimizing thing. But when you have the right embraces it and then liberals know that it's like oh, you don't say that? And leftists are like, oh, that's bad politics. You know, we're too, we know it's more sophisticated and it's structural forces of capitalism uh, working through, working dialectically. That's how history unfolds. It can't be people in a room making decisions because that's about agency and that's not how it works. It's all the structure of the capitalist system, right? So it's like the, but the, but the, high crime discourse or whatever is a kind of revolutionary thing. And if the right wing embraces it, is the only one that embraces it and then as things break down in the US and there's a t and the the, the center doesn't hold then where is the balance of like revolutionary outrage and also the balance of violence it's on the political right like you could have fascists taking over uh, thinking uh, not fascists but right wingers essentially attempting to do who knows what as things break down and uh, they'll say they'll they'll think that the CIA is like you know, communist and that they killed JFK because it was a communist plot hmm. and they got to make sure that they defeat them. I mean, it's a, it's creating, I don't know what the end game is. I, I think it's kind of a safety valve in a way to try to just manipulate things because things are going to, things may well break down and maybe they're th trying to think ahead and like, let's, let's make the left kind of dumb about like who, what we really are and let's get, have the right full of half truths, but they don't fucking understand anything because they don't understand the capital's political economy. I mean, it, it basically points to us being I, stupefied 
yeah. like epistemologically and ideologically stupefied, at least on the whole, made into a mass as, uh, but a kind of incoherent, uh, atomized mass. This is like what sort of things C. Wright Mills was pointing to, I think, have come to pass. And they, they stage manage it on purpose, uh, I, I believe. Yeah, I, I believe that too. Uh, let's uh, move on. Um, okay. Do you believe that the American mass shooter slash loner terrorist phenomenon is what we have inherited, whether purposefully or not, from Lee Harvey Oswald legend and other famous scapegoats that the CIA invented? This seems like a you know pretty straightforward question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't. I have no idea about any of the individual other mass shooters that have come about um and they get some of the critical versions of the the critical takes on them are strange you know like the crisis actors and things like that um which i but you know the one where the guy dressed up like a joker the joker and started shooting people and had been previously working in a psychiatric uh um you know, i don't say unit but department in a university i think doing some experiments on things i thought that was a weird story but i, I didn't really delve into it that much it's believable to me that they could that it could be part of some sort of strategy of tension these mass shooters but i don't think it's it, it's been very well proven it, uh is substantiated in any way and i think that uh it's the kind of thing that if they could do it they could probably do it in a way that would leave no trace and then if people did try to connect it to the state, they would be sloppy about it and they would kind of discredit, you know, people that even want to look at that, at it that way. Uh, so they're, I think like they're quite sophisticated if they do do it that way, or it could just be uh, the pathologies of our society and the availability of guns. I mean, I think this is a deeply sick society in many ways uh, that if you do not have a strong family unit to protect you or you're not what you don't have wealth and you don't have a lot of the wherewithal as an individual that you would get from having a family that had wealth and from being well educated and everything else you admit this is a scary country to live in and uh you it's it can be very lonely and full of really kind of uh sort of terrors that we have of like the uh just isocial alienation and uh and, and mental illness that comes from being detached from, you know, a healthy human society. Um, so I, you can, I can believe that it's, it's, there could, it could well be a mix of like some people who are like state, you know, a clan have been manipulated by the clandestine state or part of some operation potentially for, as a strategy of tension, just to, you know, impact the culture. And then some could be legitimately crazy. It's hard, you know, I would, it's possible it's some sort of mix of that. I think you're muted. Even if we don't accept the, uh, uh, you know, that every one of these mass shooters has some like deep political background. I mean, there's there's plenty uh, of instances of quote unquote lone gunmen that I mean uh, that don't hold up to a lot of scrutiny. And one of the ones that uh, comes to mind, I mean, that's relevant to a lot of the stuff that we talk about is uh, like uh, El Said Nosair, who was uh, the alleged killer of Mayor Kahana in the early 90s and you know he was part of a cell of uh you know uh, jihadis who was trained by ali Muhammad, who you know uh, 
I mean, that's There's a whole a blind, other the blind shake, the blind shakes and all involved there. Too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, after the after the killing of Kahana, I mean, there's actually disagreement about whether or not he actually fired the shots. But uh, I know less about that those details and the actual uh, the bigger part, which is that uh, police, uh, like law enforcement, went to his home and found you know evidence that he was trained by Ali Muhammad. They found like Fort Bragg manuals that Ali Muhammad had taken. Uh, there were two of his compatriots that were there, but they weren't taken in. But the prosecution decided to try him as a lone gunman. And yeah. so like that's that's just one example of them using this lone gunman trope because, well, we all know that lone gunmen tend to do crazy things. Uh, well, and they just use it to sweep up a, a bigger, well, deeper metal that later... In his case, it was... In, the, in his case, they did attribute it to... A political assassination. It wasn't a. It wasn't. He was alone. Uh, he wasn't a nut. He mass wasn't a shooter. Alone. Yeah, because Mayor Kahan was a was, uh, murder know. with a particular motive, which was that Mayor Kahan was a fascist. Yeah. Um. Kind of like the current. Kind of like pretty much everybody in that that's running Israel right now is not that much different from Mayor Kahan. He's more the. Who would have thought he'd be mainstream? But yeah. now he's the mainstream of Israel. It seems. Yeah, but the. Uh... Yeah, I mean, and then there's like the Stephen Paddock case where there we have 911 calls of people saying, yeah, that there are like multiple shooters. Uh, is that the Vegas one? Yeah, that was the uh, yeah. the Mandalay Bay. Uh, which yeah, that did seem really weird I when I looked at happened. it. Yeah. yeah, I didn't really look deeply into it, but I thought that's really strange. But then I, you know, yeah. that, I mean, that when did that biggest... happen? What was the date of that one? I, that was, was 2017. Um, okay. Uh, it was my my sophomore year of college. So that ah, uh, that's that's interesting. It's 2017. That's the first year of Trump. Yeah, um, but it seems to have disappeared from like the cultural consciousness. Uh, at least, given the fact that it's the largest mass shooting in American history. Uh, I mean, who has the bandwidth for these things? You know, I mean, exactly. like the, an the anthrax freak. letters, for example. The anthrax letters. That's a case that is very juicy and with very explosive information that has been uh, compiled and yet it just sits there like that's all but confirmed at this point like the anthrax is probably more confirmed as a some sort of deep event than stephen paddock or anything else i mean they the fact that they traced the anthrax back to fbi labs but they also know that someone tried to pin it on uh the 9-11 terrorists yeah. uh, i mean that alone is enough for you to be <laughs> like well i mean this this idea that it's a lone guy it's a pair it's a lone parapolitical actor, a lone nut parapolitical actor, because he did attempt to obscure responsibility and create his own the a cover story for the crime he was committing out committing for totally idiosyncratic personal reasons. Yeah. Told. It was like I didn't do it for any to align perfectly <laughs> that happened to just actually impact the passage of the Patriot Act, this this enabling act like legislation. I mean, it is so implausible. But then so is the, but like, we're getting to that. We're getting to that realm. It's like ISIS is the, is another version of that. You're like, this is, uh, it's obvious what this is. We all know what it is. You're pretending we can't figure it out. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you have all these, all these uh, other lone, lone gunman plots. Well, not lone gunman plots, but like, uh, you know, the like terror factory type stuff. If you read that yeah. book. Uh, oh yeah. Like all those, all those mentally ill teenagers who the FBI just, coaxes into buying weapons or buying fake weapons and then arrest them like it's just i mean this all ha is living in the shadow of lee harvey oswald i mean the the only time that i ever heard the assassinations of the 60s connected in any coherent narrative 
It was one about like gun control. It was it was like, oh, well, you know, all these guns in America, they make people crazy. It's just it's an easy way to sweep everything under the rug and not connect the cannot not connect them as part of a, a broader whole. Even if you want to call it a strategy of tension or if it's just a lot of random bullshit happening from these different parapolitical centers. If like, you know, the FBI is making all these fake terror plots. Okay. And then something happened with the Stephen Paddock stuff and that was completely unrelated. And then something happened with the Aurora shooter also completely unrelated. Even if it is that, I mean, it still needs to be discussed, addressed and analyzed in some way, but you're right. Who has the bandwidth for that? Like, I, I don't like there. There's people on the internet who like, uh, make it their, make it their whole thing to uncover this stuff. You're never going to find it, even if it is good sound based on research. Uh, it's hard to find. Like, who, who's going to go through all the forums and all the world just to discover what uh, you know what Stephen Paddock was really up to? Uh, because no real institute or no major institution is taking the time to do that. So we're left to either speculate or move on. <laughs> yeah, and history does is moving on anyway, which is the cool thing. Yeah. Although it might be uncool if we blow up the world. That would be very uncool. All right. Um, a new question. I would appreciate insight into the background and analysis of the whole operation in Panama, the arresting of Manuel Noriega. Under what legal circumstances was this possible and what were the Bush's true motivations? Is there evidence that Bush and Noriega felt with each other or you know, felt with each other during the 70s and 80s? Uh, I'm not quite sure what that means, but uh, the whole thing... I think is it means, like, were they, working, were they, like, working together? Oh, I see. Which they uh, were. Would, yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is a small blip on history, but I think there's a lot more to that story. And yeah, I know. I can't cat. quote chapter and verse on Panama off the top of my head because I haven't really looked at it in a while. But as I recall, the operation happens in 1989, and the uh, Soviet Union is in, not in a strong position but they haven't collapsed yet um and this was manuel noriega had done a couple things to he'd acted sort of as a nationalist and he had taken some steps to try to unify central america in a particular way he had done some things diplomatically that angered the united states and he was a he was involved in the drug trade but that was also something that had been condoned, maybe even set up by the CIA. And I believe that that relationship actually, it may have begun when Bush was the CIA director, um, if memory serves. But I would have to look that up to confirm that for sure. But he was, when he was involved in the cocaine traffic, it was at the time that the Contras were trafficking a lot of cocaine. I mean, at the time that there was a CIA protected drug traffic. So um, he was a person that was involved in that. And then he became inconvenient uh, for whatever reason. And they went in there and they kind of leveled some neighborhoods and killed a lot of innocent people. And it was pretty much a farce because, I mean, there's a good movie on this called The Panama Deception. And it, had, it features Michael Parenti talking about it a lot. I watched this many years ago, but you could probably find it on YouTube today somewhere. Or something. It's like a documentary. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's, it's very well done. Um, so that is, that, that would be what I would say you should check out. But the drug part of it was always, I mean, that was what he was arrested for is drug trafficking. Uh, but it was, he was involved in a whole lot of other things as, as well. I mean, they were, uh, uh, it was a strange, 
it's one of those places that is of great geopolitical importance. And so it's often a place of intrigue for, you know, organized crime and everything else. Um, there was a stat story that Matt Alfred has, he wrote about the, the writer with no hands talks about uh, a screenwriter who was writing a story on um, this Panama, the Panama war and the horrible things he saw there, but also this connection to like a sexual blackmail ring uh, and other like, other shenanigans down in Panama. And it's really an interesting story. I'd like to get Matt on to talk about it, but I think he's a little tired of talking about that one, but he's, he's a good, he's a good podcast guest. He's funny uh, on top of knowing a lot about this stuff. So maybe I could get him to come on. I'd like to and talk about that because that deals with, with Panama somewhat, but it's a, it's, there's a good write up on it also in William Blum's killing hope, which you can find online. The PDF is posted at like archive and other places. I, I uh, actually was at Half Price Books a while ago uh, and just got the book uh, Our Man in Panama by John Dingus. It's about like Noriega and that whole escapade. Haven't started it yet, but uh, I, I, I was thinking the same thing. I know dramatically like uh, like little about the about the subject other than yeah. like this was a Bush. This was one of the Bush episodes. It's like a, it's like the it's an updated version of like the Banana Wars of the yeah. early 20th century. All right. Uh, next question. Hey, Aaron, you know, podcasts like QAnon Anonymous and Paranoid Strain. It seems like it's just intellectually dishonest conspiracy theory debunking. The thing is, the hosts seem quite uninformed with very vanilla leftist politics. Paranoid Strain did a multi-part series debunking JFK conspiracy theories, culminating in the takedown of the Stone film. It all feels like it's either an op or it's, or it's just Canadian. I feel like you should take a look and maybe do some debunking the debunkers series. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't typically want to go into those. That's more like a Jim Diogenio thing because he's really focused on this one case. And uh, I mean, any any group that would look at the details of JFK and say like this, there's no conspiracy is they're dishonest. They have to be lying. You There's no way that you can look at the evidence and the magic bullet trajectory and so on. I mean, even before the thing came out at the New York Times. But I mean, it was always absurd. And then you look at what the doctor said. It was clear that Kennedy had a big exit wound in the back of his head. It was described by people at the Naval Hospital. It was described by the doctors at Parkland. It was described by Clint Hill. The evidence of a shot from the front is on the video. It's just obvious that Kennedy was killed by multiple shooters and uh, the, the kill shot came from the front. It's just, if you cannot accept that, it's because you ideologically must not accept that or you're being paid not to or or whatever. So I whatever those uh, podcasters are putting out, they are either idiots or they are propagandists. Uh, they're, they're either so ideologically stupefied by on they've stupefied themselves basically that uh, they've 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 forced, the world, uh, every event that happens is something that they must put on their Procrustean ideology and just stretch it so that it uh, confirms their priors. And, uh, you know, I don't really have use for that kind of bullshit. Um, so I'm not going to listen to their stupid podcast. And uh, if somebody else wants to, I'm not, I'm not directing this at the questioner. I'm just saying those people, uh, as this questioner probably, uh, you know, does understand, are um, they're bad actors. They're bad faith actors. They are propagandists. Whether they, if if they're genuinely just doing that out of their own leftist beliefs, then that's kind of pathetic. But if they are being, uh, you know, encouraged to do this by someone else and boosted, you know, algorithmically or whatever, uh, that's that sucks too. And that's wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, uh, I mean, 
I, I have never listened to QAnon Anonymous, although I think TrueAnon had them on, uh, and they were pretty positive about them, but I don't know anything about them. Uh, I've never heard of Paranoid Strain, but I do know that there are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people who parapolitics isn't their wheelhouse, and uh, when they'll do things like conspiracy debunking, they'll uh, they'll they'll take this flattened view of conspiracy theories that people who believe in like you know Pizzagate are the same as people who believe that uh, that there was a plot to assassinate Kennedy, and they'll put them in the same bucket, and then they'll just look at the sources that debunk them and uh, not critically question them. Uh, there's a guy I watched on YouTube. Uh, you know, he makes pretty decent videos. They're well researched in the sense that you know he cites his sources that you can go and look into whatever he's saying. But he did a whole, like, you know, hour and a half long video on how the Kennedy assassination was just a lone gunman. And he that's like divided into multiple chapters and he cites all his sources for it. And then I was like, okay, let me just go to one of the chapters, like the the, the rearward head snapper or something. And you look at the book, you look at his sources and it's just like Vincent Bugliosi, Gerald Posner, Fred Litwin. And it's like, well, I mean, these guys have been thoroughly debunked by other people. I mean, you read Mark Lane's Jim's, review of uh, yeah Jim's uh, takedown of Diogenio is like he wrote a whole book on it and it's actually oh, works it works as a book it's actually good is this a reclaiming Parkland uh, well he changed the name it's now JFK the the evidence today oh uh, well it was yeah, called I mean, reclaiming Parkland and Oliver made him change it which was a good move by Oliver because it was a bad title <laughs> yeah I mean I had that book on my shelf and uh, someone someone was like is this about like the the Parkland shooting and I was like no it's not. <laughs> But yeah, that uh, makes it even weirder. It was bad even without that, but then that made it even weirder. Yeah, and I don't know. Yeah, I feel like most people don't know what like the the hospital was. I, I think that and also you it. wouldn't really want to reclaim it anyway. It's just where it's where the president. They just I, said yeah. I he think did. he named it that because it was also the name of that Tom. Yeah, Hank that's Bruce that's movie. why there was a there was a reason behind it, yeah. but it ultimately it wasn't it was a bad even he he conceded it was a bad title and he changed Which it. Awesome movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, Jim's people, awesome. Jim's awesome, but he's he's not a gifted title maker we'll just have to throw <laughs> hey, that out titles there. are hard titles are hard but uh, I, I know that a lot of people will just like pick up those books uh see like the the abundant footnotes see the reviews in new york times or whatever and then you know not think to check them against people who are critical of, of, of those sources and so then they'll take those sources as fact and then be like well anyone who disagrees with this should go read this book and that, that's the end of their research and the and, book you know, is as big as like a, it's like as big as a um uh it's huge the book it's like is, four it's, bibles. it's like a big it's like two telephone books yeah uh he, he yeah even he thought it was too big he released a new version of it <laughs> that was smaller i don't even think he wrote it i think he had ghost writers at the agency write it no uh, yeah personally. i mean yeah vincent bugliosi is a spooked up guy to, to begin with i mean if you look at uh uh tom O'Neill yeah the helter the chaos stuff yeah <laughs> Um, but that's not the well, That's there. funny because Ben was like, "This was that's funny that you said because Jim Diogenio when he did this, he, uh, the the book came out of like a review that he just started writing debunking it all, and uh, eventually, he somebody says like, "Man, Bugliosi is so bad on this. It makes me wonder about the Manson case even." And then like that was bef- that was really around the time, <laughs> right before the time that chaos came out, and then it was like, "Holy shit!" Like, yeah, even even that he was lying. Yeah, yeah, and he was a—he's like the shadiest guy on the planet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know about the these podcasts. Maybe I'll give them a listen uh, just to, and I'll give my two my two cents on it. If it becomes too bad, I won't even bother. My Life time is too short to listen to bad bad things. 
I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on whether the crackdown at smaller institutions, such as your former employer, uh, against anti-Israeli sentiment is self-directed or a sign of actual Israeli-backed actors. Personally, I think the former, but that level of reach is disturbing. Um, well, I guess that it, this is a multi-part question, but uh, I'll read all the parts and you can address them. It's also, as an aside, I'm curious as to whether you think that people like Eve Barlow are aware of the lies they spew, or if they are really true believers. It's useful to understand what level of uh, what level propagandists like her are operating on. Any book recommendations on this topic? Uh, either way, I think compiling a list of such occurrences within the U.S. would be worthwhile. It would be immensely beneficial to see the extent. Uh, to see to what extent people are forced to issue apologies, lose their jobs, or other negative consequences in relation to their support for the Palestinians. Uh, I'll just point out on that last note that Palestine Legal has a database of this sort of thing. So if you're curious about it, uh, definitely go check there. They've uh, reported a, like a 400% increase in people uh, reaching out to them about this very thing. So that would be a, a good resource. Yeah. But uh, I the mean, question I, I, of yeah. uh, institutions and Eve Barlow. Okay. Now, you'd, this would, could differ from case to case, but uh, as far as the way that Zionism operates as a lobbying force, out, not, in, not, in, not just in the way that in, they lo uh, lobby in Washington, but as a influential force in all of civil society, basically, like the way that universities and even high schools cannot run afoul of Zionism or they, they will find themselves all of a sudden their best donors or some of their best donors or at least powerful enough donors will contact them and say, hey, you got to better stop this. And then they do it. That is, you know, that doesn't have to be coordinated from Tel Aviv, but uh, you do, you know, you will, you wonder how these things are coordinated. I would, I would bet for places like Harvard and the Ivies that they do actually have a, have a map, have people that map out these things and know who, that they're very networked on this. I, I think that Zionism has been so extremely single-minded in, in achieving its goal and it has a lot of really wealthy backers now do are these people donating to these institutions specifically so they can manipulate them for that reason i would bet that some of them are exactly that other people are just wealthy and they happen to care about the subject and then they might you know be easily aggrieved by this i mean and it, and it gets to eve barlow i mean look at eve barlow and you can actually understand why this is the case i think that she is a, a psychotic person but it's a kind of social psychosis like we saw in Germany in the 1930s. I don't think that the Zionists are uh, reasonable in any way. They are fanatical, and it is a fanatical ideology, and it's so crazy uh, at its core. It, it, it argues for something that is deeply immoral in this day and age and cannot but result in something that we see now. I think what we're seeing now is really where this is the natural endpoint of this uh, because uh, of just the crazy blood and soil fascism that it represents. And she does believe it because why would she be taking all this abuse otherwise? Like they, she feel whenever people point out how stupid she is and how insane and deranged and psychotically murderous, like the implications are of what she's saying, she takes that to mean to be more evidence of why you have to have the state to protect people because it's the world is so mean and everyone is so full of hatred. That's really the way that she sees it. Like she is a lunatic 
but it's a kind of lunatic uh, lunacy that is uh, on display among many, many, many people and, and many powerful people even uh, that seem to genuinely have this point of view. And then the more that they are call, taken to task for the crimes they commit, the more that they see this as evidence that they are correct and that they must you know, ha- allow this project to, su- to succeed or they will never be safe because the world hates them. I mean, it is a, it's insane. It is really insane. And I think that because it has so much wealth and power behind it, we're left to just let it run its course, apparently. The U.S. political system can't stop this, even though it's damaging the United States. And it's probably going to damage Israel a great deal in the end. And we can't do anything about it because there's a genuine psychosis driving this. It is a crazy ideology. It, it goes beyond even a, a, a religion. It's a, it's a religion. It's a fascist politi- blood and soil political project intertwined with a religious monotheistic metaphysic yeah Uh, and that is why it's dangerous as hell and scary as hell yeah we 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 usually use the term religion to be like uh oh this is an irrational belief in uh but you're devoted to it and you're devoting your whole life to it to describe you know things like that we describe like for market ideology or or you know conspiracy debunking ideology like you know we call them religions but in this case calling your religion doesn't even cut it because it is a religion but it's also more insane than your normal religions uh, but to the question about whether or not it's coordinated i mean if you look at uh, something like the the documentary the lobby uh, like the the, the lobby that's US. definitely coordination yeah like yeah there's a lot of coordination uh, on a lot of different levels about how to achieve specific goals in like universities and state houses and uh well and you know obviously in congress uh, and that does have uh, easy connections to the actual state of israel and their uh, uh i forget what the actual minister was it was like minister of like public strategy or something like that um but i mean they they clearly have a, a hand in that stuff they provide tools to organizers to monitor social media i mean uh, it's it's well coordinated uh, but it, it all also like you said Aaron it doesn't need to be for something like a random school in the middle of random random town I mean all it takes is just one influential wealthy person to decide like I believe this and I'm gonna shift my weight around to enforce these beliefs in other places he doesn't need to a phone call from Tel Aviv he doesn't even need a phone call from APEC he doesn't need a phone call from anybody. He can do this by himself. He can just be like, hey, well, if you don't do this, well, uh, my next year's donation might be uh, it might be inhibited in some in some way. Like, that's all that needs to happen. And that's the, that's the case for a lot of different things. Like uh, it doesn't even have to be Zionism. I mean, any billionaire or any multimillionaire with like a, a political goal can make something happen by virtue of right. just having a bunch of money. And that's just the nature of our In this case, the political goal isn't just making more money and and such. This is what makes it unique in the in our political system. Right. It is it is different. And I don't feel that leftists have a good framework for analyzing it. I think even I did I as much as I was not a proponent or supporter of Israel before October seven, I don't think that I had a way to I did not properly or adequately, and I didn't really need to for American Exception, the book, because we stop at Reagan. And I don't think it's really until after that that you 
it takes on it kind of takes over the driver's seat of u.s foreign policy um full on like i think you can make an argument a lot of time that it really did function as kind of an aircraft carrier in a way although there's a backstory there that's weirder than probably what we know but it's really after in the 90s and 2000s especially that it really takes over more direct control of the u.s foreign policy that zionist element and we don't if we're if you're looking at these things from a a sort of a rational choice framework meaning that you do think that these actors do they do act like rational choice utility maximizers caring only about themselves right you can say that capitalists do kind of behave that way but for the uh you know the zionist faction of the, of the u.s deep state they're not it's actually not you, you it's not rational what they are trying to do in the way that they go about it they don't quite operate in, and they don't operate in a transparent way either so because they're not transparent in, in in what they're doing all the time although they do enough for for like john mearsheimer and stephen walt to write the israel lobby um but you can't really get us get get the scope of the whole thing it's actually much worse than Me walt mearsheimer say because a lot of it is is done in ways that are under the that are not visible um and this we don't have a way to to adequately account for that because and if it, it, when you start to talk about it it's like it does end up rhyming with things that are very stigmatized i mean it rhymes with tropes of uh you know zionist conspiracies to rule the world like yeah, and that protocol. i think makes i think that's made people hesitant to say like this is actually ex this is why they gave Meersh walton mearsheimer so much shit even though you can't touch their arguments like with logic you just have to say you have to attribute it to like a blood libel or it's like the protocols right and and people who wants to be accused of being like a nazi right you don't really want that so you don't even want to you don't even want to look at it yourself uh even in your own you don't really want to think this way so it it is uh the way that they have single-mindedly worked to advance this agenda has they've been very effective at at this and the result is that they've bent u.s foreign policy to their to their will and uh we don't really have a, a academia can't stand up to it because theoretically it's it presents certain challenges on top of it institutionally you're screwed if you talk about it in any setting journalism academia politics i mean that's just that's pretty clear and if you just stop and think about that and think like yeah actually there's no other political issue that's as that's as clearly debatable as this and yet if you take one side you will be kicked out of institutions it's it, it's right. it's remarkable that way yeah the the whole idea about this being clearly debatable is the big thing i mean it hit me when i was an undergrad organizing for this stuff uh when i uh you know used a cartoon that uh uh, depicted you know the the democrat donkey and the republican elephant dress up like cops and they were beating up this kid with the with the bds on it on the shirt but then the the the, the cops the democrat and the donkey they had patches on their arms that said in the flag of israel we trust uh and so then the university was like well this is anti-semitic uh well it wasn't the whole university but it was a department they were like this is anti-semitic uh because you're using the star of david to denote like control uh and we're no longer allowing you to uh advertise events with us we won't co-sponsor event you're basically banned from this department right and i was like well this is you know dumb as hell <laughs> uh, but it's not about logic it's not about reason if you can somehow construe criticism of israel to overlap with the trope about control 
uh, about Jewish control, like the anti-Semitic uh, tropes, well, then that that's the ball game. You can't do anything. So if they are exercising some level of control, or if uh, the state of Israel is influencing uh, our country's politics in a subterranean way, talking about that is invoking an anti-Semitic trope. I mean, that that's a defense mechanism that, I mean, you can't buy that. <laughs> it, it's a you can exploit I, it though. You, you can, can exploit, exploit it. it. You can exploit they do it to the hills. Yeah, and, and it's it's very effective. Although it's becoming less and less effective. No, I think it's actually. I think that they have screwed themselves more than they understand because I, yeah. I don't think that the younger generation, the younger generation, a, I think has more contempt for established institutions than. It's not articulated in a totally coherent way, but as things get worse, it's going to become more articulated. And these ideas of like, oh, you can't say that because, you know, CNN or Harvard tells you that's wrong or, or the Democrats <laughs> and Republicans say that's wrong. I don't th I think that's not going to work. I don't think people are going to have much sympathy who are younger uh, about Zionism. I mean, I don't I mean, you're there on campus, but is it more? I mean, is it more like for people to express support for Israel these days? Do people kind of like just sneer at them or 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 what? Is it more common for people to be like that? That is just bullshit. And you were wrong. And this is like this is murderous. <laughs> at what least, the state of Israel is doing. At least at, at the graduate level, I have not met a single person who is like, uh, like, oh, I full throatedly support Israel, uh, like life or death. Nothing like they can do no wrong. I'm sure there's like maybe a few of them, but they're a, a, a super minority. Uh, most and that, people. That, the fact that they're quiet about it is yeah. notable now, because to me that that speaks to a shift in and of itself. Exactly. Well, I have a friend who was, uh, you know, at the start of this thing, October seventh, uh, we were we were hanging out on that day, uh, and they were pretty pro-Israel. Uh, they're like, uh, you know, they 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 were there over there for a time, and we were talking about it. I was like, well, uh, we'll see how this goes, but. They, they were like, well, you know, Hamas is evil, blah, blah, blah. They use human shields. But, you know, a, a few weeks ago, I mean, like a, a month or two or into this, uh, you know, Iron Swords operation, they were like, oh, no, like I, I was I was wrong about this. Like this is this is worse than anything I've ever seen. Uh, and I am ashamed to have believed this. Uh, now they're willing to like, you know, learn and like uh, do do events and like go to a book club and stuff. Uh, like that's that's progress. I mean, take we we just had the student involvement fair yesterday, um, last night, and I remember the first when I first founded the group or what, the first time I was uh, like at the student involvement fair as this organization, they put us like right across from like uh, the pro Israel group like Hoosiers for Israel or something, uh, and you know they were being annoying or whatever. They didn't even have a booth. They didn't even have a booth uh, yesterday. Uh, nothing at all. And then the, we, the Palestine booth was like, you know, big, bussing, like uh, yeah. flags everywhere. People were interested. In and that really says something. People yeah. are are ha are proud to come out and represent this side. And the people that support the other side are like, we're ashamed. They're ashamed. Of, of, like but they, they don't, do the, don't want to, they don't want to take the public, uh, you know, outrage that they will uh, receive if they're out there waving the flag of a state that's committing genocide and is about to be basically indicted for it. Yeah, like th this is the like when when it was just the hostages and when you could sort of deny it and back before the the Palestinian casualties crossed like 10, 15,000, 
you know, you could still see, you know, uh, pro-Israel people out there like demonstrating or like having an event or or like putting up their uh, kidnap posters or whatever. I mean, now you don't see any of that. Now it seems like they're they're quiet because I mean they're they're if they come out with an Israel flag, I mean they're saying that they support genocide, and uh, the culture of the campus is changing. You know, you see stickers at bus stops saying "Free Palestine" in different languages. You see uh, uh, different stickers making fun of administrators for supporting genocide. I mean, like it's a it's a real sea change, and I think that's yeah. happening all over the country. And yeah, I mean it's it's. If, if you're a pro-Israel student, I mean, you have two options. Either, like, learn or, like, be marginalized. Because that, that stuff's not flying anymore. All right. I mean, I, I think that that is going to be the case with the younger generation. And uh, I think that, that they don't understand the impact of that. I mean, there will be the kids, the, the younger kids who are, like so loyal to like you know the same people that would be generally conservative kids in any other setting like if they were conservative protestants then they would just be like you know supporters of george w bush and the war in iraq and stuff <laughs> yeah. right but instead in jewish families that are pro that are zionist then they'll be you know really pro israel i mean there's just some people that are going to be like that no matter what but it's going to be increasingly i think a smaller group of people and they're going to be kind of mocked by the Oh, yeah. but, I mean, it's because the people that are most uh, candid about mocking uh, Zionism are often Jewish people because they don't yeah. have to worry about like trying to parse their words carefully so that some, you know, bad actor can misinterpret them uh, for, you know, nefarious reasons. They just come out and say it. Uh, I mean, I, this this has been the case for a long time, though. There was I did canvassing in, around here in these in the Philly suburbs, and we would go to a lot of heavily Jewish neighborhoods. Where it's like the majority is Jewish, like almost everyone is, and they were at they were very cool by and large. Like really, the cooler places to go because they were all generally smart and friendly people that could you could talk about politics with. And uh, the guy, one guy, one guy who was he was a Jewish guy. He was super nice. It was very funny, and he goes, "Oh, uh, my neighbor, you should skip my neighbor. He's uh." uh uh, he's like, yeah, I think that Bush is terrible and he's really doing disastrous things, but don't talk to my neighbor about it. He's Israel. He's Israeli. That means he just wants to kill everyone. Right. And this was like around, this is in 2004. So there's always been people that are just more candid about it and like realize that this is kind of a crazy project. And now I think that's the majority of the younger people. And it's definitely the majority of the younger Jewish people that you would, that would be considered cool in any way. You know, yeah. I mean, look at Eve Barlow and how she is just a pariah on like she's like an anti she's like an anti-influencer now she's like literally a clown like i only know about her because of people clowning her like that's yeah you only know her as the heel and she seems to know that and uh so in her mind she's heel. like she's a martyr she's just like look at how they well that's the thing like this. when i was a uh, you know back in church you know you you get the light Christian version of this, like, oh, the whole world is against Christians and uh, you you will you know experience persecution and temptation from the outside world, but the truly faithful will stick with the faith no matter what. I mean, this is like that, but like times 10. And they truly believe that when they see, you know, some chalk on the ground that says free Palestine, the, they truly believe that that's an attack on them. They truly yeah. believe it and they react accordingly, like physiologically. They, they start sweating, their, their heart starts beating, their fight or flight kicks in. They're like, oh, God, oh, God, someone's trying to free Palestine. But that's a you, you can teach that to people the same way like people see uh, 
you know, they would see Black Lives Matter and be like, oh, well, you just want to kill all white people. That's crazy. Like, it's the same, it's that same muscle <laughs> that's being exercised in a, in a, you know, in a community. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a common thing. I mean, the, the, the cartoons about Reverend Wright in 2008, and they were trying to say that he was, that his, that his message boiled down to kill Whitey, you know, <laughs> that was a, there was a cartoon that, that said that at the time. And it was like, this is, this, this is insane. This is like insane, like uh, a, a, a backward mentality. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's go. Let's, right. We got question. two more. Yeah. We got two Good. more Perfect. questions. Um, one, uh, it never made sense to me that Joe Biden became the nominee. He was lose. He was a losing. He was losing the primary before everyone dropped out before Obama's phone call. Uh, but I did not understand why Obama would choose to make that call, knowing that he is the highest paid person in Congress by Israel. Is this is, is this the answer to the mystery of how Joe Biden became president? Because nothing else really makes sense to me. He's so incoherent, and he was terrible in the primary. <laughs> He'd already lost the election attempts uh, in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and what are the odds that with his polling being what it is, they will pull a plug on him? And is the potential move to slide Newsom in the back door the backup plan to ensure we can't vote for some new other outcome? Uh, and are they just showing up guaranteed victory by doing whatever they're doing with RFK Jr.? Uh, because at this point, it seems like they control the entire political field and I can't imagine that's an accident. I mean, this is these are all good questions. I mean, of course, he was a ridiculous candidate. I don't think that it's as clear cut as he's Israel's candidate. But I think the fact that he is Israel's candidate is because the guy will will go to wherever the money is. And Senator so that BFA. means being. Yeah, that, that means being uh, means being pro-Israel. It means being pro-Big Pharma. It means being pro-finance. It means being pro-agribusiness. It means being pro-military industrial complex. It means being pro-Big Oil, if I didn't already say that. I mean, it's <laughs> it, he's all those things. So, no, it's not just Israel. But, it, but if he were anti-Israel, it would be totally bizarre because why are you for all these other horrible things? But then you have a, some reason, uh, you know, you have a problem with Israel. So it's related, but I don't think I don't personally think it's the reason. Although it, you know, I think if he weren't pro-Israel, it would have disqualified him. Why does Why does Obama make the call? So I think somebody else told him to do that. I don't think Obama wants to be the manager of the Democratic Party, but I think he is a guy that the real power brokers can call him up and say, "Hey, you're from your multi-bazillion-dollar mansion that we put you in." Uh, can you, you need to make a call here and get, do X, make X, Y, and Z happen. And so they do. And then they got the people drop out of the race, you know, etc. The whole race was stage managed. They flooded it with, with people who really were not serious contenders so that they really, you really couldn't have it be like Bernie versus the democratic establishment. Instead, it was like, Oh, what do you think about mayor Pete? And what do you think about Clobo cop? And what about Kamala? You know, Kamala, does he have a Like it was all just a way to not have bernie be the center of the, the campaign when really that was the only drama was like is bernie going to be able to win or is it going to be another corporate stooge and they are they were like no it's 19 corporate stooges and bernie and we're going to give everybody equal time because that's democracy and that's fair you they remember made people run who clomentum after uh, like that, well, i never heard him say that i'm glad i didn't that would have made me angry <laughs> 
that's worse than Joe Mentum with Joe Biden, uh, which or not Joe Biden, Joe uh, Lieberman, Joseph Lieberman. He's like, you've got to get feel the Joe Mentum. <laughs> like that, like that guy was. If he, if Gore had won, I would bet. I mean, you can't. If you could do, and we had the ability to have a time machine and you can't his counterfactuals i would bet money that gore would have been assassinated and you would have had the iraq war and everything else because <laughs> lieberman would have been president um like it would have happened that way so yeah the the biden was just is just a he is that he is the deep state but a front man like he is a guy who was like whatever power and money wants i will shape myself to do that in a way He's the perfect American. Like that is what America is. Money makes America and America makes money. And he, what a perfect leader for us to have uh, in this system. Yeah. And that's why he absolutely sucks because the system absolutely sucks. It's a <laughs> shitty thing to do to try to build a society uh, that is centered around buying and selling shit. And to think that there is no greater human purpose than making money when money is something that humans create anyway, it's an idolatrous, sick way to look at it. It represents a lack of moral imagination and just a total failure that we are still in this mentality uh, as a as a society. And that's why we're circling the drain because we, it's all just building on itself. Yeah, I, I will push back and say that Biden was losing the primary. He was winning. He was the top polar throughout the whole time. And, uh, you know, actually, him he was polling pretty bad early on. Well, I maybe he was still top, was, though. I mean, he, he was wasn't winning, top. like, he was near the like, he was he didn't do well in Iowa and he didn't do well in New Hampshire, uh, as I recall. And well, I guess I'm, South I'm, Carolina I'm against the, the year before the, the actual primary started, uh, uh, when he when he because I, I, I consider that part of the primary when all these debates okay. are happening. Like yeah. and he was always the top, even though he was a uh, it was a it was an open question whether or not he was actually going to run. I mean, that's uh, I think that's name recognition there for that. Well, that, exactly. I mean, I think that's why if there's one reason that Joe Biden won, it's the fact that he was Obama's vice president. If you had and there was the key one, thing, no one else. I don't think that it was determined at the beginning of the primary. I thought that they had thought maybe someone else would do do well, and yeah. that, that could be the person. And then there wasn't. Like I think if Mayor Pete was like more popular with people, uh, with like yeah. you know non lunatic people, then they would have uh, Obama would have made the call for him. Same with Klobuchar. Same with Kamala. I, like, yeah, I I think that uh, I think that he was. I think Buttigieg was backed by people who really only had one thing in mind, and that was making sure that Bernie didn't win Iowa. I think that was his whole purpose. He had people spend millions of dollars of their own money. Just well, I mean, you remember pissing, what happened during Iowa, knowingly right? pissing it away. Yeah, they made it close enough to steal. That's basically what it happened. <laughs> Mayor Pete, white boy from in from the Midwest, uh, even though he was gay, which probably may have may have complicated it a little bit in Iowa. Um, he they they put him in there, and he close enough for him to steal. Yeah, well, I mean, then the they they were using an app for the first time to run the caucuses, and yeah, the only was, reason to do that is to be able to is for yeah fuckery. Well, the app was developed by a company that was owned by people who were Pete supporters, and yeah. uh, it was called the company was called Shadow, <laughs> and then yeah, Pete used that the, the confusion around the app to declare victory before the the votes were counted. Yeah. And now we saw that that joke that Pete Buttigieg has declared victory in whatever election. Yeah, it's it only stopped being funny last year. He's, um, I don't he, I don't think he has much of a future. He's just a, a flack. He'll be a guy that gets appointed to things. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a, uh what is he transportation secretary now? 
Yeah. Great. He's just sitting in a chair all day. He doesn't do anything. But all right. Uh, last question. JFK. Both of the Kennedy session cover-ups cover -ups seem to include the potential to be interpreted publicly in ways that would have ramped up international tensions, i.e. Lee Harvey Oswald being a Soviet or Cuban agent, Sirhan Sirhan, a Palestinian. I know that Lyndon Johnson made efforts to avoid that version of what happened because of legitimate concern that it would spark nuclear war, maybe, uh, because it was so over-corroborated by phony stories that it was too obviously fake and would point to the CIA itself, maybe. Uh, and it seems a bit strange that the CIA would employ this strategy twice if the first attempt was a failure, uh, it if failure. it truly was an attempt to blame the communists. Um, do you think that they tried to bake in these possible explanations just in case they decide it would be politically expedient, say, if they wanted to ramp up tensions with the Arab countries after RFK assassination? Or is it always plan A? Or third option, is it a way of pressuring public figures like Johnson to champion the simple lone nut theory to avoid possible catastrophe of the public believing assassinations to be international international conspiracies. Um, I uh, think that for the Kennedy assassination, it, you have to it's, you have to speak in probabilistic terms because we don't know for certain what they did. One possibility is that, and I think that this is the one that ultimately did win out, um, which is. Okay, excuse me there, um, which is that they knew that by making it look like a, like he was a communist, it would necessitate a cover-up. You make him look like a communist, you make him look like somebody who had been speaking to a Soviet uh, KGB person, then, and that's what LBJ said to Earl Warren. He said, oh, if you'd seen these things that are coming out of Mexico that Hoover showed me, oh boy, Woo, it's some scary things. We could have everybody die in nuclear fire. I mean, it was immediately going to guarantee a cover-up. So I think that the people that were really running things did expect it to guarantee a cover-up, and that's why they did what they did. You make him look like he's a, a communist, so on the surface, sure, that's good for Cold War purposes and Cold War paranoia, but really the issue is getting rid of Kennedy and Kennedy's plan to change foreign policy. So I think that there were probably some nuts who wanted to use it as a pretext to go into Cuba. Uh, you know, like there, there may well have been people who thought that this, that they were part of a Northwoods kind of operation and that it would serve as a pretext to go into Cuba. Uh, but either, either, L, either that plan required Oswald to be killed, uh, so that he couldn't say the things that he said, and then you could, and it would be, there'd be less doubt about it and you could potentially have an invasion of Cuba. Cause that actually would have been kind of feasible, but from those people, um, or he was like, or, or they just weren't going to do that anyway. I, I don't know. I mean, there. I think you set up these false sponsors, and it gives you more options with how you're going to cover it. And if it does seem conspiratorial, then or there are things that look like it on the surface, you have every reason to try to cover it up for for, the, for exactly the way that they did. I mean, to have a, a way to be able to cover up the crime of the century that was built into the way that it unfolded, that doesn't seem like something that would happen by accident. And Oswald and his movements as far as being pretty clearly a false defector and pretty clearly doing some sort of intelligence work in New Orleans and being on some kind of mission when he was in Mexico City. I mean, this is, um, you know, it, it's clear that he was an intelligence operative of some kind. So uh, this is, I, I'd recommend it. Actually, the Dick Russell 
the, the Rob Reiner Soledad O'Brien podcast on JFK is pretty good. It's it's the basic stuff that you've heard before if you've read a bunch of JFK books, but it's it's a very good distillation of it because it's not super long, really. They're half hour episodes and they're very good. And they're half ads. <laughs> yeah, the ads are fucking annoying. There's no doubt about that. But um the Dick Russell explaining the Richard Case and the Gale thing, because he wrote the book on that. I actually want to get him to come on just to talk about that sometime soon. Uh, if I can, but that's an amazing story. I mean, you listen to that and like Richard Case Nigel knew him in Japan. Uh, I, I think saw him and may have seen him in Mexico City at some point. Was and he goes into Dallas and he says he doesn't want to. Be, I mean, he predicted the assassination and he had Lee Harvey Oswald materials on him. I mean, that's a pretty that's an amazing thing. There was and he was clearly an intelligence person if you look at his background. It's like so there's. There's really a lot there. Now, as for the Sirhan thing, you know, something happens with LBJ taking over. And that is, we don't know exactly what that is. Uh, it may be that there was an Israeli hand in the in the assassination plot. And I don't think that it may have been that initially, but it may have been that Jack Ruby was uh, given, you know, that Israel made that happen. Israel used leverage on Jack Ruby through you know, connections to the syndicate, people like Meyer Lansky, you know, and uh, so on that would have uh, had sway over him because he was, Ruby was in Cuba, went, visited Cuba, sometimes secretly and, and you know, not legally would fly to Cuba and uh, would meet with people that were connected to Santo Traficante, who was, you know, part of the syndicate, part of Lansky's syndicate, like Louis McWillie, who he visited in Cuba. Was yeah, he was doing gun running as well, or maybe he was there to help to negotiate. Some people think he was there to negotiate uh, getting Traficanti out of prison uh, huh. at one point. So, you know, whether that's true or not, he had these connections to Lansky uh, and the and the syndicate. And uh, Lansky, of course, retires in Israel. He was, uh, you know, Jewish person, likely, you know, useful for Zionism in some way if they let him come there late in his life, right? So it, what may have happened, and this is kind of speculative, but... It may be that the by with Angleton, you know, Angleton had had was working on the Israel Israel desk. He had control of that. Uh, maybe they used those connections to have uh, them lean on Ruby and make that happen and solve a problem for the CIA. Maybe that maybe it's as straightforward as that. Is like why there's the shift, a huge shift, but from LBJ to Johnson. I mean, Johnson is more on the side of war and imperialism in every part of the world, so it's hard to say exactly. But that's a possibility because look at what happens in 1967. You have Israel attacking a U.S. vessel and launching a unilateral war against, uh, you know, a preemptive war against Egypt. And that was uh, a time when previous administrations had tried to, total, to, to strike a balance between Arab nationalism and support of Israel. But that all went out the window. Instead, the next, you know, the next president after JFK is LBJ, and he basically shrugs off an attack on the USS Liberty, and then uh, at the same time, it doesn't really do anything to stop Israel from illegally taking a bunch of land in the Six-Day War. That's how they are in the West Bank and Gaza and the uh, Golan Heights. So there's a big change there at that point. And the fact that there's a Palestinian patsy in the next uh, election, and now we look at RFK Jr., and he is kowtowing to the Israel lobby, you know, like like he's horrified of them, uh, and, and he's saying things that are totally incongruous with the other things that he's saying. But yet, there's this power. It's this dark, 
forced there. And even in his own personal life, it's, I mean, his father was killed by, a, he knows his father was killed by a Palestinian patsy. And I know that he knows that that's not random, that they choose a patsy randomly. Uh, and additionally, JFK Jr. was uh, at George Magazine. He published the only article in the U.S. press that was really critical of the of Bibi Netanyahu's forces in Israel that seemed to that that were uh, responsible, I think, for the Rabin assassination. At the very least, they their rhetoric of like you know the existential threat that the two state solution and and Rabin were were proposing that that posted to, to Israel they were pr- putting that out there and JFK Jr was writing about p- published a story about that and then he he dies in a plane crash so this is very heavy stuff these deep events they're they they I think that they're more a part of the real uh international relations in the history of the u.s empire then is recognized and it's totally opaque and not really discussed so the most we get is people like me talking about it maybe on a podcast or maybe in some of peter's books you might have reference to these things but um there's a there are big parts of our history that we don't know but we at least should know that we don't know them you know <laughs> that makes any sense. you know <laughs> yeah it, it, no i just... know exactly what you mean like it, it, it that's just uh what what was that article about the like the holographic state? Uh, that That's you a Matt Witt, right? Matt Witt article. Matt Witt and Lance Haven Smith. Yeah, the state that define the state that ends up defining itself by its enemies and legitimating yeah. itself by reference to its enemies. It's a a holographic kind of production. Yeah, and then we have to like use sort of divination to figure out what the what the actual state is. Uh... Well, that's the, the the criminologist. That's another model of that. The people that used to study the criminal because they would always yeah. be like, what the hell is going on there? And it's kind of that approach that you need for the U.S. because it ultimately is an opaque thing based on people with a lot of power and, and bureaucratic power trying to maneuver in different ways and trying to figure out what the angles are. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy world we live in, Aaron. This Isn't is true. It, <laughs> it definitely is. This is uh, this has been a special episode. I think that we're just going to publish this uh, as one cut. I don't think we need to edit anything out. I'm not going to edit out my cuss words or anything else. Um, so Wait, have I, you edited that, that's out how it's going to be in in the no, show before. No, I don't believe so. Okay. <laughs> just once I, I told a really offensive joke once about um, people from. Uh, Samoa. No, I'm just kidding. I like Samoa. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I don't edit out those things. I wouldn't have to do that. Um, I, I'm down with Samoans, by the way. I think we need to actually help them. And isn't the U.S. still occupies? You know, we need to get out of every place. My yeah, main thing home. is we need to get out of every place that is not. We aren't all. We don't occupy and live in. You know, like clearly with nowhere else to go. We need to get out of the Middle East. That's my main thing I'm thinking today is, my God, get us out of Iraq. Get yeah. us out of Syria. Get us out of back in Israel. It might be happening. It might be happening. We'll see. I think it is going to happen. They're going to kick this uh, us out, and it will be – people will rejoice when white people no longer rule the Middle East. Um, yeah. Which, which the, we the tough part currently Iraq, still sort of do. Yeah, the tough part for Iraq is that we still control their, uh, their currency reserve, so we can, like, destroy their economy, like – whenever we want to, even if we're not, we don't have troops there. I don't know. That's not going to be, that's not going to be the right, the case forever. I think that China has enough money and currency reserves. They could cover that. And if it came to that, that would be such a profound humiliation for the U S 
So these are these are crazy times. Um, everyone, uh, thank you very much for subscribing to the American Exception podcast. We should have some cool episodes coming up soon. Uh, one on 9-11 related issues and McJihad with uh, Adam Fitzgerald and the Peter Dell Scott oral history series should be resuming very soon and there's more devil's chessboard coming soon as well so thank you so much everyone who subscribes and who submits questions and bryce green thank you also for doing this today happy to do it take it easy y'all